Hello, welcome to the BNB Connection. This is episode seven. With me is Brad Schoenfeld. And uh, this episode is going to be on evidence based fitness. So, Bradley, uh, you wrote a very good uh, blog post, a very good guest blog post for me a couple years back uh, called The Hierarchy of Knowledge. Do you have that in front of you, any chance? Uh, I do. Okay. So I thought we could start off this podcast by having you go through that a little bit. So uh, first of all, who th this blog post that you wrote was based on a book written by Potvin? Uh, yes, Portney and Watkins, uh, basically, it's one of the seminal texts uh, that we have in, in research and evidence-based practice, and uh, uh, the I would recommend everyone gets it, and this is an adaptation of their, their work. So they have, is it five steps or is it, a, is it five? Yeah, it's a hierarchy of five, uh, five different levels of knowledge. So before, uh, we, before we get into the hierarchy itself, does this hierarchy mean that, uh, that there are different, so this hierarchy is going to go through the different forms of exercise, but does it mean that one form is better than the other or is it give you like a, uh, an evaluation of which are the best methods? Correct. Yeah, well, and better is, is somewhat subjective, but that there are different levels of, of knowledge and that uh, if you're looking for more scientifically based knowledge, the higher up you go, generally the more appropriate that's going to be for drawing conclusions. And we, we'll talk a little more as to why in terms of the objectivity of the evidence or the control when we're talking about the scientific method. But uh, Really what we're talking about, the, the first level, the bottom level, if you will, would be tradition. And tradition says that I'm going to do something because other people have done it in the past. Uh, a good, uh, one of my favorite uh, topics here is the donut. If you've ever watched a baseball game where they use the donut, the weighted donut to swing a bat, uh, people have done that forever. Well, there's been a lot of research showing that if you swing a weighted bat, right before you go up to hit, it actually decreases your ability to produce force, yet people continue to do it. Why? Just because it was done in the past. Uh, I've spoken with uh, Eric Cressy, and was a friend of yours as well, a really astute fitness pro, another baseball analogy. Uh, baseball pitchers, uh, every spring training, you're seeing them running lap after lap or run several miles. Why does a pitcher ever have to run? He stays on the mound, he'll throw a pitch, wait 20 seconds, throw another pitch. How does this apply to the specificity? It doesn't. Why do they do it? Tradition. So really tradition is the oldest form uh, or, or the lowest form of knowledge. And um, generally we, we want to stay away from that. Now there could be benefits, there could be uses for it. Uh, certainly you would hope that certain things have passed the test of time. Just because something is done before you doesn't necessarily mean that it's a good way to go about it. So tradition is the lowest rung. This is the lowest form of evidence out of the five that you're going to go through today. That's correct. Does this mean See, you that, should ignore tradition? Well, no. As I mentioned, it's it's not. You, you don't want to ignore anything because there could be a basis for it. The fact that, as I said, it has stood the test of time, there's certain things that could mean that it might have some value. And if you don't have other supporting evidence, some of the other hierarchy, when you're going up the ladder, you would look to the highest level first. That would be your last form of deferral, if you will, the tradition angle. 
but generally speaking, that would not be a good form. That would be the you could not be, or I would not be very confident in making decisions just because something uh, had tradition behind it. Um, your next level is authority. And I'm sure we all know how people tend to uh, defer to authority just because someone has a higher degree or they're a well known strength coach, fitness pro, uh, we will tend to trust their opinions. And a good, uh, I'll give you a good example here. Uh, I just published a uh, paper with Alan Aragon and James Krieger. It was a meta-analysis on nutrient timing. Well, uh, I was a big proponent of nutrient timing, and I, to some degree, fell prey to the authority aspect. I read the classic text by Ivy and Portman, John Ivy, some other uh, very popular and, and renowned um, nutritional professionals speak about it, and I've been aware of some of the research as well, but the fact that some of these authority figures had uh, discussed it so much uh, as, as a viable strategy led me to believe that, uh, hey, I can trust this. And after doing a lot of my own research, uh, found it not to be true. And as a matter of fact, uh, Dr. John Ivey had posted a, uh, or had written a review in a paper challenging one of the papers that I had written with evidence that really did not support his, or where that was very skewed towards, it, towards the actual topic. And I actually t uh, tackled that in a blog post. And, it really shows you that just because someone is an authority doesn't mean they're not prone towards towards significant bias on the top. So that violates the tradition and the authority um, forms of evidence, correct? Violates. You relied on this information. I mean, that's a testament to the to the authority. Yeah, you you relied on like nutrient timing, we've been doing it for a while because of tradition also. The last 10 years, uh, maybe maybe not 10 years, but the last eight years, it's just gone without saying. You need your protein shake after your workout or you're going to, you're wasting. Because, yeah, but I would say that's because of the authority. That's because people had just, trust. we were trusting, or most people were just trusting the authority. It was in position papers. Uh, by certain organizations, and, and of course these position papers were written by authority. So uh, it became tradition through authority, but tradition usually means it's done over a somewhat longer period. This is the topic of nutrient timing really was uh, probably a dozen or so years uh, where we really... Where that's I remember become... reading about it in like Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, encyclopedia where he said rest you know, after your workout, take around 20, 30 minutes for your blood to get back to normal and then immediately slam a, eat a big meal of protein or slam a protein drink or something like that because... So everything uh, goes back to Arnold then. Well, you know, and it makes sense. It's it's logical, you know. You just did a hard workout, you need that, you need the proteins, you know. But that this goes to show you why it's important to go move up along the chain of hierarchy. So what's next? The next is trial and error where basically you try something, see how it works, and then adjust based upon whether it's working well or not. Now the problem there is is that that is generally an N equals one and it's not in a controlled, uh, you, you don't do it in a controlled fashion. There's no control based on it. So it's privy towards bias towards what you're seeing which might not necessarily be indicative of 
uh, of an actual effect, or the proper effect. And, and look, n equals one is a very effective technique for a given person. So we know that research just shows norms, just shows means of different groups and that people respond differently and we'll get more into this. There's high responders, low responders, and basically you get a means between that. People will respond differently. There's a lot of inter-individual differences. So we need to then take what we have and then apply it to an individual and then use trial and error. But if you're using trial and error without basing it on some scientific process, um, the scientific method as we'll talk about, uh, discuss, your starting point, you have no idea where you're starting, so your trial and error can be wildly uh, ineffective in terms of how you're you're grasping at it. And by the way, just because something proves to be effective in what you're doing doesn't mean something else might be more effective. This is one thing I hear all the time is that, well, oh, look at the great results I'm getting. Well, that's fine. That doesn't mean you might not have gotten better results doing something else. Um, the next one, the... Uh, second highest to the top would be logical reasoning, and this is a big uh, component of the top rung scientific method. But logical reasoning, we look for to logic. We it's a systematic process where you uh, combine personal experience, your intellect, and various formal uh, thought systems to come about with a an opinion on the topic. Um, you can use deductive uh, reasoning, which is um, where theory is used to create a hypothesis, uh, or you can use inductive reasoning, where you use generalizations uh, that are drawn from various observations. Now, these are, are valid uh, techniques. They, are, they go in line with the scientific method, but just because something is logical, as we know, doesn't necessarily mean that it adds up. We could say it's logical that doing crunches should make your midsection flatter. It should reduce the you think that, right? You're doing exercise, you're getting, I mean, or you could think that, but as we know through research that uh, logic does not always translate into practice. And we see this all the time. There's so many logical assumptions we make as, as scientists that when we apply the scientific method and subject them to research that don't pan out. And that finally leads us to the last one, which is the scientific method. Uh, that is a systematic, a controlled, critical way of examining a subject. So we're going to look to control, if you're doing a, a true experiment, you look to control as many variables as possible other than the one that you will manipulate and uh, systematically then uh, take two groups that are very similar to one another and draw conclusions from that. And if you're doing it objectively, then there should be very little to no bias uh, in the uh, conclusions that you draw. Uh, but there are plenty of limitations, as, as you well know. Uh, so ultimately what we're going to look at is, uh, when we talk about this evidence-based process, is taking what we know through research, th through the scientific method, looking at the body of research, and then combining that with our own personal experience, as well as the needs, and this is very important, which a lot of people miss. It's not just taking the research and saying, okay, this is what the research shows, so this is what we're going to do. We look to our experience from that, and then look at the needs and, and abilities of the individual. And with all that, we're then going to draw uh, conclusions as to how to properly go about working with that specific individual. So speaking of research, are there um, 
types of research articles that are, is there a hierarchy in, in research? Absolutely. Uh, we Generally, you want to look to your, what are called your randomized controlled trials, where you're uh, systematically, as I mentioned before, manipulating one variable where you control the other variables, and, and, and then um, you can draw causality from that. Uh, the observational studies, uh, such as a lot of the epidemiological work uh, that's done, uh, they look to correlations. They look at associations between various um, topics, and we know that correlation does not necessarily uh, lead to causation. We know that ice cream, eating ice cream, is correlated to murders. Uh, that doesn't mean that eating ice cream causes murders. That means that usually you're eating ice cream in the hot summer days and that there's a correlation more towards the fact that it's uh, the hot summer days can cause, uh, leads to uh, other crimes. So again, we have to be careful when drawing uh, causality. But that, again, doesn't mean that, again, a lot of people I know will dismiss observational research, and that's misguided because we, we can draw a lot of, of great, many of the greatest um, uh, conclusions that have been drawn in terms of, of our, what we do today has been drawn through epidemiologic research. Um, what about case studies? Is that a high form of research? Again, case studies are, it's, when you say high, it's certainly not on the level of experimental research. So that you're going to have different gradations that would depend upon, a case study can be effective, but that is an N equals one. Now, a series of case studies can end up being quite effective because you're then drawing your, you're being able to pool certain things. So what's the uh, benefit and the drawback of case studies? Well, the uh, specific drawback is that it's an N equals one. So just because one person responded, you're, you don't get statistical power and you're not, uh, there's no comparative source that you're looking. You're not controlling one variable. I, I mean, just uh, looking at one variable with, while controlling everything else when you're doing a case study. Basically, a case study, you're looking at one person and you don't, there's no comparative source. So that really goes back to an N equals one. You could have an outlier, for example. Correct. Or not only an outlier, but that person, uh, there, there can be all sorts of reasons that you're getting one effect in terms of things they're doing uh, that's not controlled, that you wouldn't know but unless the, you had other. But the benefit is that you can often, with a case study, delve really deep into one you know, particular area or get some in, a broad set of information with that one person that you wouldn't be able to do with a... So it's good to know the strengths and drawbacks. Let's talk about review papers. The strengths and weaknesses, and also meta-analyses. So, what are the strengths and weaknesses of a review paper? Well, the certainly the the weakness of a review paper is that there's often a lot of uh, subjectivity in it and bias. Uh, as someone like myself and you as well, who've written a lot of research papers, uh, you know that um, someone can be quite biased. Now, the peer review process hopefully should take out some of that, but the, re the reviewers themselves are going to be subject to bias. And look, you're going to get reviewers, even in, in randomized controlled trials, that have their own biases and will try to steer things. But um, there is no control to a review. And you can, in a review, you can selectively ignore a lot of research if you either, if you're biased towards a particular, you want to show something, and or if you just don't, you're not a good, or not, 
shouldn't say good researcher, but if you're not as knowledgeable on the topic or don't really understand certain things, you can not know certain research that you're not including. You miss it. Um, and then, again, if the reviewers, that really would be up to the reviewers if they don't catch that. Uh, so there's a lot of subjectivity. Now, the, the benefit to it, especially when it's done well, is that you get a good overall um, view of a topic as well as the fact that it allows you to, it gives you uh, a hopefully a broad-based idea of the literature. So the first thing generally I'm going to do if I'm looking at a topic that I'm not aware of is go to review papers and then look at their list of references to draw upon and then try to select out the references that I think would be very important there, if not looking at all of them, looking at a good collection from, uh, depending on the journals that are they're published in, the authors, uh, their profiles, and other factors. So certainly that can be a, um, a good way a good way to uh, at least get a, an overview on a topic before studying it more in depth. Uh, the meta-analysis that you brought up uh, is a, a really cool topic, and what that does, it pools the results of hopefully all the studies. And by the way, I should just take a step back and mention, so that was a narrative review, which I mentioned before. There is something called a systematic review, which is a step up from the uh, narrative review where there's a systematized process that you use, and it tends to take out some of the subjectivity uh, within a, uh, a review. But the meta-analysis really is considered the highest form of evidence-based practice. If you look at the evidence-based practice guidelines, they gravitate towards meta-analyses because it's a systematized way of taking all the studies on a topic within a certain inclusion-exclusion criteria. So you'll look, a good researcher that's doing a meta-analysis will, um, will try to hone in on what they're looking for and exclude certain studies that aren't relevant. Because if you include all studies and, and there are some, let's say, well, you're looking like I did at protein timing did this protein timing meta-analysis, if you would look at all studies, well, supposing a study gave someone two grams of protein, we, we use the criteria of roughly 18 grams of protein, six grams of essential amino acids. Supposing the study did two grams of protein, and it was a low quality, it was gelatin. Or they, again, you would, you'd have to qualify uh, that because that might not be showing the true effect. So you, we're supposing someone did a study that was two weeks in length for a hypertrophy study where you're not going to get those, the results that you want. Right. So most, in most uh, situations in strength and conditioning, here's the problem. Ideally, any topic we were curious about, we could just pop on, hop onto PubMed and find a open access meta-analysis of every single topic or a systemized review or a narrative review. But there are so many topics in strength and conditioning that, and it's, it's so, you know, it, you don't, it's not a field that has, you know, a ton of research, so you rarely, rarely find that. In fact, a lot of topics don't have any research on it. And so let's talk, uh, we've got 10 minutes remaining. Let's talk about how an evidence-based person would go about trying to educate themselves on a topic. Let's talk about a couple different scenarios. Let's say I'm a power lifter, and I'm like, I want to, or no, I'm just a lifter, and I want to learn about powerlifting. Do I just start looking at research papers on powerlifting, and then start trying to formulate how I train 
by reading what the journal articles have to say about powerlifting? No, again, absolutely not. But what you want to do, as, as we discussed earlier, read this based practice. But research has many gaps in it. When you're doing a research study, uh, you both you and I know that uh, it's each study is just one piece to a puzzle, and that there are huge uh, gaps in, in much of the literature that we just can't properly assess. Because especially with something like exercise, there's endless number of ways you can carry out uh, exercise, carry out program design, uh, and trying to study them is a never-ending process. And and you're you're really left with um, with a lot lot of gaps in this. So what I I think and, and the evidence-based way is to make yourself aware of what the literature shows. But then you do look. You have to then appreciate. And this is a key element here. You have to understand the limitations to what these studies are showing. So you understand these gaps, and then you look to personal experience as well as your own body. So you'll take this research. You take your own experience, and you can. There's nothing wrong with so the we talked about the hierarchy. The hierarchy, um, yeah. Can you consult with other uh, authorities on it? That that's a good way. You know the if you know the research, that's the first key. Because if someone just tells you, hey, drink three bottles of castor oil and your uh, your one RMs are going to go up by 20%, he's an expert. He's got a PhD in biomechanics. Well, that doesn't mean anything. You would know through the literature that that's not. That's a ridiculous uh, comment. I mean, but, the point I'm trying to make, Brad, is that it would be silly for any person to try to learn powerlifting through the research alone. Right. But you, sh but if you are trying to be the best powerlifter possible, you would want to know some stuff about the research. So here's how I would go about it. If I'm just a regular lifter and I want to learn about powerlifting, I'm going to look at what different routines are out there, how the different powerlifters train. How do raw powerlifters train? How do geared powerlifters train? How do steroid users train? How do natural lifters train? What are some of the most popular methods out there? I'm going to look at message boards and see what topics are discussed. I'm going to try to join a gym and ask them and, you know, talk to the lifters and say, what should I do? How do I, you know, how sh what type of routine should I learn starting out? How's my form? What assistance exercise do you do? What sets and reps should I do? What periodization form should I use? What program should I be on? What are the popular programs? I'll look into them. And you and try to become friends with lifters who know a lot as well. But as you gain experience, you know, you will learn that power lifters tend to follow tradition. They tend to tell you what to do, what, what works for them. You know, you should do this program. Well, that's coincidentally the same program that they're on. Will that work best for your body? How do you know how to tailor things towards your body? Well, you need to learn a little bit more about biomechanics. You need to, and then you incorporate that information into your training and you see if it works. You could put it through trial and error. And it's this constant, to me, the, uh, the, the evidence-based fitness or evidence-based coaching or evidence-based lifting it's not about just relying on published research. It's this constant um, art and skill of utilizing and ranking and filtering all the forms of evidence, whether it's anecdotes or 
published research or logic or whatever and you know qualifying them and saying okay this I can trust this I'm a little bit skeptical about and then employing you know trying it and then basically like the Bruce Lee quote absorbing what's useful disregarding what's useless you know so um, let's talk about uh, you want to be an evidence-based strength coach and you're just an everyday lifter can you become a good strength coach just by reading the research well, again, and, and I completely agree with what you said. So training, and I thought I had made this clear, but maybe you kind of got lost, that training is a science and an art. Uh, when you're talking about some of the stuff that you are, a lot of that is art. But you can, And the art is great. The art is necessary. But you can't be an artist in this context, in the science-based field, without understanding the underlying science. So can you, can you be a bodybuilder? Can you be a powerlifter just going around the gym? Sure. Will you necessarily reach your potential? Probably not, because right. you're then just relying on these lower hierar uh, the lower uh, hierarchical uh, aspects. So again, to me, you, you need to have an appreciation. So yeah, I look, I'm a bodybuilder. I have been for years. I learned through trial and error, through going to the gym, just like you said. But it wasn't, I wasn't able to take my physique to the next level and to take clients of mine when I was training them to the next level until I really had an appreciation for the science, the more scientific aspects. There are still bodybuilders who are doing concentration curls because they think that it's getting the peak in their biceps uh, or, or doing um, crunches because they think it's, it's reducing their, their midsection. So again, we do have to have an appreciation for the science. So yeah. Do and you... even to, to go off of your, what you talked about earlier, your paper with nutrient timing, yeah, you can be a good bodybuilder, but some of the things you might be doing are unnecessarily painful. If you're a slave to your nutrient timing and you think that you need to eat every 90 minutes or you're going to go catabolic and you're, you stay up on the evidence and you read research and you come across this paper that you and Alan and James wrote, you'll say, okay, it's not as important as I thought. I don't have to be a slave. I can eat, you know, it works best for my schedule to eat four, four meals a day instead of six. And since I ate a big meal before I worked out, I don't need to worry about eating right right after my workout or something like that. But it may, it gives you that's to me that's the essence of being evidence based um, by using all these different forms of evidence. And you know, as I'm a lifter at heart, I'm a, a gym rat. You know, I love talking to my stronger friends about their own training, and you know, I always like to hear what they're doing, what's worked for them. That's what all good lifters do. But you just know that it's an anecdote. You, it sparks your curiosity. You might say, I'm going to try that, or you might not. But you listen to anecdotes, but then at the end of the day, to me, what a, the culmination of being evidence-based is saying, you know, is to be in a position where you can publish research or conduct your own experiment about it and be utilize the scientific method and say, you know what, I am so curious about this I'm going to control all these variables and just look at this one question and really hone in on it and try and answer it myself because, you know, being a, a scientific-minded lifter, I'm so curious about all these types of things and I'm sure every lifter out there is so curious about different things. But unless you can use the scientific method and unless you have enough, you know, sample size, you'll never know, you'll never really know the answer to it. You'll have to just rely on lower forms of evidence. Yeah, and, and I mean, as a bodybuilder, certainly I, uh, 
I'm going to look at people like John Meadows. I mean, he's he's inventing all these new routines and stuff. We haven't studied those. Does that mean that, well, I can't do that because it's not in the research? That would be ridiculous to, to think that. So we need, as a matter of fact, most good research comes in, in an applied science like exercise from the field. So we need uh, people that are in the field that are uh, looking at these innovative techniques to then try to study them. And often the, there's so many limitations to the to the tools that we're using, the sensitivity of them, uh, that again, I think your point is really well taken, that we need to be aware of what people are doing. We need to follow that as well as the research. Brad, we've got about a minute or two left. Mm -hmm. Yep, minute and a half. Why don't we end on the uh, TRX story that you've told me? Oh yeah, so uh, I think that's one of my favorites. A good friend of mine, Jay Dawes, uh, was um, at uh, some fitness uh, conference and they were, they were watching uh, the people doing TRX and one of the this prominent researcher who's evidently a real research nerd turned to Jay and says, uh, is that validated? And Jay turned to him and said, uh, gravity? So, uh, you know, this is the type of thinking that that's a lot of researchers have. They're not, one of the things I think that separates yourself and I from some of the researchers is that we're also practitioners and have been for, for many years so that it gives us perspective and that uh, you can't just look at things in the right. context. I call them research snobs. I can look at an exercise and go, oh, that, that's, you know, that's probably going to work well and then I'll try it and I'll make my decision. I won't, I don't need, uh, you know, a oh, randomized, I don't need a randomized controlled trial to tell me that this exercise is, might be good. I'll, you know, I'll, I, I, I know enough about biomechanics to see for myself, but the point is not to be a you know, research snob. It's to just know the forms of evidence, the ranking and the hierarchy of them, and try to make decisions that, to the best of your abilities based on all the evidence around you, knowing that you know, ideally you'd have, hell, ideally we'd have a meta-analysis with everything. But say you want to know, you know, what's the best exercise for transferring to the vertical jump, or what's what's the safest, um, you know, I want to, my I have low back problems, but I want to do an exercise that loads up my quads, but it's easy on my low back. How would you go about answering that? You know, um, there's lots of tools available to you. There's research on this. There's if you figure out how to calculate or estimate spinal loading, you know, there's, there's, then if you just know good strength coaches, a lot of them will tell you, try the Bulgarian split squat, try the, you know, try doing single leg exercise, try a reverse lunge or something, you know. Um, so there's lots of evidence out there, lots of tools, lots of forms of evidence. Use them all, but just kind of know, uh, you know, be aware of the, the, um, the hierarchy be aware of, well, this is this expert's opinion, and experts are often wrong. Experts are biased. We all are. We can't help it. It's a human, it's an inherent human trait. So um, anyway, this is a, a good podcast. Brad, thank you for shedding light on the hierarchy. Anything else to add? Yeah, one last point is that uh, we, and this kind of goes to what you just said, is that we must, if we want to actually uh, optimize our programs, we must remain objective. We could probably do another podcast on this, but all too often P, uh, fitness pros get hardened into a certain way of thinking, and they don't want to then consider that they might be wrong. And, and as scientists, 
there's no crime in being wrong. It's not even wrong. You believe certain certain things based upon the evidence that you have at one point, and if something happens in the future that shows otherwise, we need to be um, willing and and embrace the fact that uh, science uh, guides our processes. So never be afraid to change based upon new evidence. Yep, my favorite one of my favorite quotes is from my my supervisor John Cronin, and he he always says. This is what I know today, and this is subject to change tomorrow based on new evidence that comes out. So you just flow with the research, you know? Amen. Okay, Bradley, signing out. Me too.